Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, All In. All right. I think most of you know by now, especially if you've been with us since we started 1 Corinthians back in May. I think you know by now that the Apostle Paul was a highly motivated man. When it came to serving Jesus Christ, he was all in. He wasn't partly in. He wasn't halfway in. He was all in. Kind of like, you know, if you go swimming on a hot summer day in a cold pool, right? Most of us, what do we do? We kind of dip our toe in first. Oh, it's too cold. I'm not going in there, right? Or maybe our foot. Or maybe after we uh, get used to it for a little while, we'll sit down in order to get used to it and kind of put our legs in and do something like this. Well, you need to know that Paul's attitude was not like that when it came to serving Christ. When it came to serving Christ, Paul was the guy, you know, who would run and Geronimo and just like plunge all in. He'd do the cannonball, get everybody wet. That's just the kind of guy the apostle Paul was. When it came to serving Christ, Paul took the plunge. But if you know anything about Paul, you know that wasn't always the case. His Roman name was Paul, but his Hebrew name was Saul. So for, for the rest of the introduction of this message, we're going to refer to him as Saul. Okay, so Saul, scholars believe, was born right around AD 5, in the city of Tarsus, Cilicia, okay? And so that would be modern-day Turkey. So if you know anything about geography, imagine Turkey in your mind. Go to the center of modern-day Turkey. Go straight down to the Mediterranean Sea, the northeastern part of the Mediterranean Sea. And right there, you'll see the hometown of the Apostle Paul where he grew up. He had Jewish parents. And what was pretty exceptional in that day was the fact that these Jewish parents of Paul were also Roman citizens. Okay, so he was born in Tarsus, but you need to know as you read through the New Testament, you put all the pieces together, you find out that as a boy, the apostle Paul or Saul was raised in Jerusalem. And he was educated by a very famous rabbi. The rabbi's name was Gamaliel. And so Saul of Tarsus would, as a boy and as a young man, he would sit at the feet of this rabbi, Gamaliel. And because of the incredible high education that Saul received, he was well-versed in the scriptures, but not just the scriptures. He was also very well-versed in the oral tradition of the Jewish rabbis. Eventually, he becomes a Pharisee. He calls himself later a Pharisee of the Pharisees. So he had a lot going for him. Saul had a lot of positive qualities, right? He was um, highly educated. He was a Roman citizen. Not only that, he was a leader in Israel. But Saul of Tarsus also had one big negative quality. And it's kind of like the worst quality you could ever have in your life. <laughs> Saul of Tarsus persecuted followers of Jesus Christ. In his own autobiographical statement, check it out what he says here in Philippians. He says, if anyone thinks he can place confidence in the flesh, I have more reason to think so. Having been circumcised on the eighth day, I am of the nation of Israel, from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As far as the law, the law of Moses is concerned, I was a Pharisee, okay? So everything so far so good, but here's the negative quality. He says, as for my zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. You see, Saul of Tarsus was so zealous about his religion. Now you got to understand, not necessarily about his God. Saul knew about God. He didn't know God. He was zealous about his religion. To the point that if you disagreed with Saul of Tarsus about his religion, he would try to hurt you. <laughs> By the way, what do you call a religious zealot who tries to physically hurt people that don't agree with his religion? What do you call that? You call that a religious terrorist. 
right? We know all about that today. Today, what's the story today? Islamic terrorists all over the world. The most infamous group now is ISIS. If you don't agree with their religion, their brand of religion, what do they do? They'll take your head off the first chance they get. Well, guess what? Saul of Tarsus was no better than ISIS. He wasn't an Islamic terrorist. He was a Jewish terrorist, and he actually murdered the followers of Jesus Christ. He murdered a Christian leader. The man's name is Stephen. You can find that story in Acts chapter 7 later on this week if you want to read it. And so Saul of Tarsus stood, and he held the garments of those who actually stoned Stephen to death. He consented as the, uh, one of the leaders of Israel. He consented to the murder of this Christian. And after consenting to the murder of Stephen, the Bible goes on to say, I think it's around Acts chapter 8, that Saul of Tarsus became like a raging wild animal. What he did is he made havoc of the church. He would barge in uh, to homes, kick down the doors. And the Bible says that he would literally drag men and women to prison. Now, ladies, can you imagine that happening today? Can you imagine this afternoon while you're all having family dinner, somebody kicks in the door, grabs your husband, but they also grab you, ladies, maybe by the hair, and they drag you out of your home. Can you imagine if your kids had to witness that? I mean, how traumatic would that be? Well, that's the kind of persecution that Saul of Tarsus was raining down on the church of his day. As I said, he became like a wild animal and he hunted Christians like a lion hunts its prey. So one day he extends his hunt. He extends his hunt out of the borders of Israel up into Syria. Specifically, he hears that there's Christians in Syria, Damascus of Syria. And so Saul gets some uh, 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 letters from the high priest and he makes his journey by camel, donkey, horse, we don't know, uh, northeast of the Galilee all the way up to Damascus, Syria. Okay, so I want you to picture this in your mind. Here's this religious zealot. He's got the power of the Sanhedrin behind him. And he's on his way with an entourage to Syria to imprison and persecute Christians. And as he's on his way, he's really mad. You gotta be pretty ticked off to do what Saul's getting ready to do. And so as he's on his way, he's kind of mumbling to himself, right? He cannot believe that his own Jewish countrymen would actually call some itinerant preacher from the hills of Galilee, their Messiah. What you have to understand if you're new to the Bible is that the first century church in the beginning was 100% Jewish. And so Saul, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he couldn't believe that his fellow Jewish countrymen were following some guy from Galilee named Jesus of Nazareth. And so he's on his way to persecute those believers. He's upset. He's on his high horse until, and you got to love this part of the story, right? All of a sudden, a bright light surrounds him. Now, as best as you can, you got to picture this in your mind. He's so upset, but now all of a sudden, a supernatural light from heaven is surrounding him. And as that light began to flash all around, all of a sudden, we don't know if the horse reared back or what happened, but we know the Bible says that Saul of Tarsus is in the dirt. His whole entourage fell to the ground. That's what you call power, by the way. He's on his face. By the way, the Bible says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. If you struggle with pride, if you struggle with your ego, you need to get that in check. Why? I'm trying to help you out. Because if you don't get, get that in check, you're going to find yourself in the dirt. God hates pride, but he loves the heart of humility. And so Saul of Tarsus, in the dirt, right? Lights flashing around, and all of a sudden he hears the voice. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And all of a sudden he says, who are you, Lord? 
changing his tune. Did you notice that? Who are you, Lord? And the voice comes back, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now, Saul couldn't believe his ears, right? I mean, he thought up to that point that all the Christians were out to lunch, that they had all drank the Kool-Aid. But now all of a sudden, for the first time in his life, he understands that he's the one who's been out to lunch. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, not Jesus of Nazareth, not some guy from the hills of Galilee only, not just some itinerant preacher, not just some guy who the world thinks maybe did some magic tricks. No, the Lord of glory, the uncreated son of God decides, I want to use that guy. And so now all of a sudden, he so to speak has his foot on the back of this guy's neck. It's hard for you to kick against the pricks, isn't it? And all of a sudden, Saul says, trembling and astonished. Listen to this. He says, Lord. Everybody, please say, Lord. He said, Lord, what do you want me to do? I love that. Lord, what do you want me to do? You see, that's what some of you need to say today because you're still living for yourself. Maybe you said a little prayer, like a poem, for fire insurance. And you think because you said a little prayer, you're going to go to heaven. But your life has not changed. You've never bowed to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Hey, don't fool yourself. You're not going to heaven. You say, why not? Because there's no rebels in heaven. Everybody in heaven bows their knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ, right? So why would you think God's going to let some rebel into heaven? No, part of true, a true salvation experience is repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And so forget about the little prayer. Have you had a divine encounter with the king of kings and the Lord of lords like Saul of Tarsus had on the road to Damascus? He bowed to the lordship of Jesus Christ and he was changed forever. And when I say he was changed, I mean he was really changed. He went from murdering Christians to being a Christian. He went from persecuting Christians, persecuting the church to being, I believe, the greatest leader the church has ever seen. So if you ever want to see somebody who's all in as a servant of the Lord, all you got to do is read the history and read the letters of the Apostle Paul, and you'll see a guy who wasn't halfway in. He was a guy who absolutely took the plunge. Now, why would he do that? Here's why. You got to hear this part, okay? He didn't do it to go to heaven. He didn't serve the Lord so he can make it to heaven someday. If you're with me, can you say amen right here? Because this is where some of you guys are all messed up still. He didn't give his life to the Lord so he could make it to heaven. He didn't serve the Lord. He didn't do good works so he could earn his way to heaven. Saul, more than anybody, understood the grace of God. The guy was a terrorist. He deserved to burn in hell forever. And by the way, you and I deserve to burn in hell forever. Why? Because we're sinners by nature and we're sinners by choice. And we have, we have rebelled against the God who created us. And the penalty of sin is death. But here's the good news. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the Lord's specialty is to take rebels and make them servants, and that's what he did. And so by sovereign grace, Jesus Christ saved Saul of Tarsus. And Saul knew the fact of who he was before Christ. He had an encounter of grace. Now listen to this. And it was that encounter of grace that motivated Paul to live for the Lord for the rest of his life as a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ. And so in that context now, we're going to finish the chapter. I love this section of scripture, so we're going to pick it up in verse 19. He says, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself, okay, what's the next four words? Help me out. 
a servant to all. I actually highlighted that in my Bible. So whenever, whenever in the future I'm reading through this letter, I can see those four words jumping off the page, a servant to all that I may win. He has a motive here. He wants to win people to Jesus Christ. He says that I may win the more. And so Saul, once again, it says he was free. He's a free Roman citizen. He was not among the six million slaves in the Roman Empire of that day, people who were forced to serve others. No, he was a well-to-do, free Roman citizen, a highly educated Jew, okay? He wasn't forced to serve anybody, listen, but he chose to serve everybody. That was so good, I'm gonna say that again. Paul, the apostle, was not forced to serve anybody, but he chose to serve everybody. And that leads you to your first point, just three points today in our message. If we are all in for the Lord, we will be servants to all. One of the greatest examples of servanthood in the Bible happened on the night of the Last Supper. You guys remember the story, at least most of you do, who've read through the Gospel of John chapter 13. You don't have to turn there. I'm just gonna tell you the story and we'll move on. But it is the greatest example of servanthood, again, in the entire Bible. And so in that day, first century Bible times, even before the first century, you need to know that people walked a lot and when they walked, they would have sandals on. They wore sandals most of the time in those days. And you also need to know that the roads were not paved like we enjoy today. They certainly didn't have interstates. No, they were just dirt paths. And so when you have sandals on and you're always walking and you're walking on dirt paths, then what happens is that your feet get dirty before you reach your destination and they need to be cleansed before you go into someone's house. Now, I understand this perfectly because I grew up in a home. I don't know if you had this rule. The rule in our home growing up was... When you go up to the front door, the first thing you do before you come in to my mom's house is you take your shoes off. And she had that rule, right? And we all, you better believe, we all obeyed that rule. So we always took our shoes off uh, at the front door. We didn't throw our shoes wherever we, we picked them up and we would take them to our closet and put them where they belonged. But we also would play outside. I grew up with two big brothers and we would fight and we'd play football and, and, and soccer and all that stuff. And we'd be filthy dirty, especially the bottoms of our feet would be black. <laughs> and so we knew the drill. My mom didn't even have to tell us when you come in the house, not only do you take your shoes off, but you go straight to the bathtub and you wash your feet. Why? Because it's disrespectful to cause the house to be dirty, Right? Now, in the first century, they didn't have the luxury of indoor plumbing. So what they had was a basin by every door. On the inside of every door in the homes of the first century, um, there was this basin and there was a pitcher of water and there was a towel hanging on a peg. And so what would happen is that when you came as a guest to someone's house, you would, somebody would be there to wash your feet. Well, guess, guess who washed the feet? Washing the feet and that day was the job of the lowest servant. I was trying to think, what would that be comparable to today? The only thing I could think of was, you know, um, you, you ever see the guy in a parade who walks behind the horses and scoops up the horse poop? Okay, that's about as low as low gets. And I was thinking too, man, I hope there's no one in here that has that job because I'm gonna get an email this week, but I was just trying to make the comparison, okay? So washing the feet of the guests of the house went to the lowest servant of the day. If you were a member of the house, you did not wash feet. Why? Because you didn't want people to look down on you. Okay, so in that context, the disciples show up for the Last Supper, the Passover. And as they walk in, they see the basin of water, they see the towel, they see the pitcher, but they don't see a servant. And they're probably thinking right now, where's the servant? Who's going to wash our feet? Dinner's getting ready to start. 
You know, Peter was in charge of this whole thing. Why didn't he make sure a servant was here? And I wonder, I can't prove this biblically, but I wonder if any of them were thinking, should I wash everybody's feet? Maybe I'm the one that needs to do this. And I'm sure if anybody had that thought, they dismissed it quickly because nobody wanted to be looked down on. They're probably thinking, man, if I wash everybody's feet, I'm gonna get stuck with that job forever. I'm gonna be the permanent foot washer and there's no way. And so I don't know if you knew this, but every disciple went to the Last Supper with dirty feet. And so they're all sitting around the table. Not a Western tall table like the one you have in your house. It was a triclinium, Eastern table, low to the ground. They would sit shoulder to shoulder with their feet out around the table. And what you need to understand is that in the context of the Last Supper, of all places, one of the most sacred events in biblical history, an argument broke out between the disciples. Now, we, we mess up because of the paintings that we see. And we think all these guys were sitting prim and proper with halos over their heads. And Peter would say to John, will you please passeth the butter or whatever? Yes, God bless you. No, these guys were a bunch of fishermen. These guys were from the hills. These guys argued on that night. And they argued about who's the greatest among them. You ever have arguments like that, especially when you're a little kid? I remember all the time growing up in school, we used to talk about who's the best. And that's what they're doing. They're acting like a bunch of kids. Who's the greatest? I'm the greatest. No, you're not. I am. Well, Jesus listens to me more. He spends more time with me. Back and forth, back and forth. And right then, Jesus saw the golden opportunity to teach a life lesson. So in the context of pride, in the context of ego, Jesus gets up very quietly. He walks over to the door. He grabs the towel, girds himself with it, pours water into the basin. And then to the disciples' shock, the most perfect person who ever lived, the uncreated son of God, God of very gods who wraps himself in human flesh to live with us, gets on his knees and begins to wash the dirty, smelly feet of his disciples. Wow. In the context of everybody arguing about their title, Jesus goes and he gets a towel. In the context of everybody saying, I'm the greatest. No, you're not. I'm the greatest. No. Jesus says, I'm going to be a servant to all. If you've been with us for more than a year, you've heard me say this, okay? True greatness is not found in a title. True greatness is found in a towel. Right? And you got to listen to this because this goes, this is diametrically opposed to anything you'll ever hear outside these four walls. Because out there, it's all about a dog-eat-dog dog world. It's how high up you can climb up the corporate ladder and you don't care who you're kicking on your way out. Up. And, and God says, that's not the way it's supposed to be in my economy. In my economy, the greatest person is the servant. And I look around at our core group here at Calvary. And I see so many people who are serving behind the scenes and they don't need a pat on the back. They're doing it for the Lord. And here's what I tell myself, in the kingdom, those people are gonna be great. And so, look at what the Lord said in John chapter 13. On the night of the Last Supper, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you... Everybody say, me. You also ought to wash one another's feet. Okay, so are you into your title or are you into a towel? Look at verse 20. Paul says, I'm into a towel. I am a, verse 19, servant to all. And now he's going to give practical examples of how he was a servant to all. Verse 20. He says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, 
as without law, not being without law toward God, but under the law toward Christ. Of course, that means the law of grace, and grace always motivates us to live a life of high morality. You guys have heard me time and time again preach on that, so I'm not going to keep preaching on that. It's right there, the law toward Christ. Paul says, I am under that law. At the end of verse 21, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that, by, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. All right, if you're taking notes, here's point number two. If we are all in for the Lord, then we will build bridges to others instead of erecting walls. If we are all in, if you're really all in, not halfway in, but if you're really a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ, then you're going to seek to build bridges to other people, not to erect walls. Now, Paul, of all people, knew that he was not under the law. And yet, when he hung out with unsaved Jews, that means Jews who did not believe that Jesus was their Messiah. When he hung out, when Paul hung out with unsaved Jews, he did keep the ceremonial law. He did act the cultural part of a Jew. And so what I, what I mean by ceremonial law is that as Paul hung out with unsaved Jews, he would keep a kosher diet. Why? He's trying to build a bridge. When, when Paul hung out with unsaved Jews, right, he would keep the Sabbath. Why? Because that's a big deal um, in cultural Judaism. And you say, why would he do that? Well, look again at verse 20. He says, to the Jews I became a Jew that I might, what's the next two words? Win Jews. You see, Paul knew that the most important thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the way, guess what? Church family, the most important thing is not these minor rules and regulations. The most important thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because people will spend eternity in one of two places, in heaven or in hell. And it's up to us to share, to build a bridge, to share the love of Jesus Christ because salvation can be found in no, no other name. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Saved from our sins, saved from hell. The only thing that will save you from your sins is the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul knew that better than anybody. So when he hung out with unsaved Jews, he kept the Sabbath. He ate a kosher diet. He built bridges. Why? So he could share the love of Jesus Christ with them. Can you imagine if Paul's attitude around unsaved Jews, you know, the sun's going down on Friday night, the Sabbath's about to start. Can you imagine if he would have said, hey guys, uh, tomorrow I'm going down to the tent repair shop. You guys want to come help me repair some tents on the Sabbath? Okay, would that have been building a bridge or erecting a wall? Help me out. Erecting a wall. He's with Jews. Can you imagine if he would have said, hey, and after we repair some tents, then everybody's invited to my house. We're going to roast a pig. Would that have built a bridge or put up a wall? Okay, so to the Jews, I became a Jew. And then he acted just the opposite toward the Gentiles. Gentiles didn't care about the Sabbath. And so I personally believe that when he was around unsaved Gentiles, Paul didn't make a big deal about the Sabbath. Ladies and gentlemen, I've said it time and time again, all 10 commandments are repeated in the New Testament except one. Keep holy the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given to Israel. Is it a good idea to take 24 hours off a day and rest and hang out with your family? Yes, yes, but you don't have to as a Christian who's not under the ceremonial law of the, of the Jews. You don't have to keep that 24 hours from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. 
And so Paul knew when he was with unsaved Gentiles, they didn't make a big deal about the Sabbath, so I'm not gonna, so, so, so if an unsaved Gentile said, hey, Paul, I'm moving on Saturday, can you help me out? Paul would have said, what time should I be there? The Gentiles didn't care about a kosher diet. And so if a bunch of Gentiles came in from the Mediterranean Sea and said, hey, we have lobster. Paul would say, what time's dinner? Why? Because it's not about minor rules and regulations. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wanted to build a bridge. He wanted to share the love of Christ with them. He did the same thing for people with tender or weak consciences. Look at verse 22. He says, to the weak, and we know in the context of chapter 8, that's people who have tender conscience. He says, I become weak, that I might win the weak. So if, if someone's coming from paganism, right? An unsaved guy who's got this paganism in his background in the first century, and Paul's hanging out with them, and they sit down for dinner, and the pagan guy says, you know, I'm, I'm really getting close to accepting this Jesus you're talking about, Paul, but, but you need to know I'm not eating any of that meat. That was dedicated to Zeus. I'm trying to get away from that. You know what Paul would have said? Let's eat vegetables. He knew that anything you pray over, God says, eat it. Praise God for that, right? And yet, to the weak, he became weak so that he could save the weak. Okay, here's my point. I said all that to say this. Paul never changed the message, but he absolutely changed his methods to reach people for Jesus Christ. Paul never changed his high standard of morality, but he did change methods in order to reach people for Jesus Christ. Now, I could apply this in a thousand different ways, but I only have uh, so much time today. So, so here's how I'm going to apply it today for our entire church. You need to understand that while I'm your pastor, we will never, ever, ever change the message of God's word. But we will absolutely, constantly change methods. Whatever methods we need to change will change to reach the next generation for Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Undeniably. Always. As I'm your pastor, you need to know that we'll never change our high standard of morality but we will absolutely change methods to reach the next generation for Jesus Christ. You say, why did Paul change his methods? To reach people, okay? And so some of you guys, like me, you spent a lot of time in very conservative churches earlier in your life. And when you come into Calvary, poor St. Lucie, you notice that things are probably very different than the very conservative church that you were part of. I was part, my wife and I were part of those types of churches for 10 years, right? And so here's, here's the difference, right? When you come in here, you find out that we sing modern songs. We use a modern translation of the Bible. We play electric guitars. We play drums. We have special lighting. We have haze. We have large screens. People can come dressed as casually as they want to come. Just be who you are. We just ask, please, ladies, be modest. But hey, if you want to be casual, be casual. Come as you are. And you say, why do we do that, Pastor Mike? Here's why. Because we live in a different time. We don't live in the 50s. We live in a different time. And if we're ever going to reach the next generation, we got to change with the times. Not our message, but our methods. Not our morality, but our methods. Can you imagine if you walked in here and there were hard pews and everybody was singing from a hymnal and some guy was up front doing this and the only instrument we had was an organ and every man wore a suit and every woman wore a tie 
and I preached out of the old King James, ladies and gentlemen, that would not be building a bridge. That would be erecting a wall. And it really would be us four and no more. So let me ask you a question. From those of you who come from a conservative background, let me ask you a question. What's more important, doing church how you want to do church or reaching the next generation with the love and the message of Jesus Christ? Right? I think we need to reach this generation. I think there's a whole lot of young people that don't know the Lord and they're empty inside and they're lonely and they're getting addicted to God knows what and we have the cure. And so we better change our methods to reach those people. Why? Because Paul said, I will become all things to all men that I might save some. Verse 24. And if you didn't think he was pressing down hard as he wrote it, Here we go. He's pressing down really hard. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run! Again, I think he's pressing down hard. If he's dictating it, I think he's on his feet right now. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. I love it. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified Here is your third and final point today. If we are all in for the Lord, we will receive an eternal reward when we stand before the Lord. Now, this is something the Lord's put really heavy on my heart. I don't know why but I just get so passionate about this right here. Ever since I've come to know the Lord, I, I understand that this life is not all there is. This This life is a little dot. 70, 80, 90, whatever years, it's done. Eternity is a long time. And yet, in many evangelical churches today, every single message is about how you can be a success and be prosperous in this life. Now, there is a little bit of truth to that, but that is not the emphasis. The emphasis is to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus Christ, which is the exact opposite way that everybody else is going and Why? Because we are not living for the dot. We're living for a line, a line that goes forever and ever and ever and ever. Now, some people, some Christians, we all make it by grace through faith in Jesus. But some Christians are going to have rewards, eternal rewards, and some are not. And so the ancient Greeks, they loved their sports, They looked forward to the Olympics. They looked forward to the Isthmian Games. The Isthmian Games were held on the Isthmian Plain right outside of Corinth, where this letter is written. And so Paul understands that sports means a lot to ancient Greeks, and so he uses sports as a metaphor here in order to drive his point home with these people. So look at verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. What does that mean? Here's what he's saying. Run to win. In your relationship with the Lord, in your service to the Lord, run to win. In other words, there's no room for laziness in the Christian life. Listen, listen. Can you imagine if an athlete, an Olympic athlete, had a lackadaisical attitude toward his event? Can you imagine if his attitude was, I don't feel like training today. I'm tired. 
pass me potato chips or something, right? Is that guy gonna win any medals, yes or no? No, okay. Hey, Christian, run to win. There's no room for laziness in the Christian life. See, too many believers have a lackadaisical attitude toward the Christian life. I overslept, so I didn't read my Bible today. It's raining, so I can't go to church. I'm too busy, so I can't be part of a life group. I'm afraid, so I never share my faith. I don't have a lot of money, so I don't give. I barely get here on Sunday mornings by the fourth song, and so you want me to serve? You know, you know what makes me mad? You know what makes me, I'll say it the biblical way, righteously angry? <laughs> what makes me righteously angry is that these Christians will use grace as an excuse for their laziness. Well, God's a God of grace, and so I'm okay. You're not okay. Romans 6 says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid it. Ladies and gentlemen, you and I need to come to the place that Paul came to, where we understand that we really were sinners on our way to hell. But God so loved us, he snatched us up and he saved us by his grace. And that should motivate us to run to win. Hey, grace should not be an excuse for laziness. Grace should be an excuse to train hard and run hard. No athlete ever got a medal for sitting in the stands. No boxer ever got a belt, right, for sitting in the crowd. And no Christian is ever going to get an eternal reward for sitting in a pew. So it's time for some of you to get out of the pew and to get into the game. It's time now to get into the game. Now, as I said in first service, I would love to shake some people. But guess what? I'm five foot eight, about 166, right? And so I'm not about to shake anybody. So here's what I am going to do. I am going to pray. I am going to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to come down upon you and to change your heart and let, so that you'll let grace motivate you to serve the Lord. I'm going to pray that you'll stop coming twice a month and warming a pew and you'll stop tipping your toe in the, in the pool or your foot or your legs. I'm going to pray that God does something so special in your heart that you'll be so motivated to get out of the pew and to start to serve the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They did it, Paul said. The first century athlete ran right for a Stephanos. In other words, it's a, a little wreath. It was made out of pine. It had wild olives. It had wild celery and parsley, believe it or not. And they put it on their heads. And they trained so hard for something that in a month is gonna fade away. If you will begin to serve the Lord with all your heart, you're going to get a crown that will never fade away throughout all eternity. You say, what's, listen, you say, what's the big deal about a crown? Hey, the more crowns you get, the more crowns you can cast at the feet of Jesus. All right? So let me just give you a loving warning right now. When we're all up in heaven and a bunch of people are throwing their crowns at the feet of Jesus for his glory, and you're standing there, and you don't have any crowns, do not come to me and say, Pastor Mike, I didn't know. I'm telling you right now. I want you to glorify the Lord, because I know what the Lord has done in your life. Are you all in? Now, I have good news and bad news. I'll share the good news first. The good news is we're going to three services on September 13th. That's exciting. That's exciting. Okay? The bad news is we don't have enough ministry partners or volunteers to absorb all three services. And we certainly do not want to burn out those who are already serving. That just would not be right. And so we need you, everybody say me. 
We need you to step up and serve. It's real simple. We need you to make a commitment to stop putting your foot in and take the plunge. Now, what we're going to do right now is we're going to watch a video testimony, a short video testimony of a couple in our church, very busy couple, big family, but they made a decision sometime back to go all in. And they have made a huge impact in this church. So I want you to check this out and then we'll close out. Hi, my name is Brian Roberts. This is my wife, Amy Roberts. Uh, We've been attending uh, Calvary Chapel for almost seven years. Uh, Initially, when we first joined the church, we were coming to church a lot, attending. We fell in love with the church, but it wasn't until after we signed up for the uh, next class and made a commitment to connect, serve, grow, and give that we decided to get involved with uh, serving and actually being coming a part of the church instead of just sitting in the church. Um, We started right right before the new building. Right before we moved over here, we decided that we wanted to get involved in the students' ministry in Shine, and we began to teach in the second and third grade uh, children's ministry, and I also got involved with Elevation with the youth group, and we found more that it's not so much an obligation anymore. We've started to fall in love with, with the church family. We started to make a lot more friends and family members through the church. It became a blessing. Right now, it's, it's more we're excited to come to church because we miss all our friends, the people we serve with, the people we actually do life with here at the church, and we didn't feel that before we started serving. We have uh, six kids of our own. We're a big family, a family of eight, and I also do shift work. I work 24-hour shifts, so it was a big commitment initially for us to, to jump into serving in the church because of how much we had at the, at the house. It felt like a big, big obligation at the time. And now through serving, we know that, that it wasn't a commitment as much of a blessing to us. Most of you are probably sitting in our place right now where you feel like it's a lot of responsibility, a lot of commitment, and that you don't know if you can handle all that with the busy schedule that we all have. I can tell you, I can make a promise to you that if you get involved with a ministry and you really start committing and being a part of the church, that it will change who you are and it will change the reason why you come to church. It'll no longer be a commitment. It'll be, uh, it'll be a relationship that you have with the church itself and with the people that come here. That'll be a joy to attend the church and meet up with your friends again and the people that you serve to get into life with. So at this time, can you guys give a warm Calvary welcome to Brian and Amy Roberts? Come on up, guys. Awesome. Now, as I said, first service, what blew me away about this couple is during Shinefest, I got to witness them in action. And so Shinefest, if you don't know, is our version of VBS. Um, last month, we did Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday mornings, and Friday night, and uh, over 200 plus kids came, and, and I got to see Brian and Amy every day, they're serving. And I also found out later that Brian took time off work so he could serve in our Shine Fest program. And so um, that, that blew me away. It shows me their hearts. And so Jesus said, hey, let people see your good works so they may glorify your Father in heaven. We're not pointing, they they don't want people to point at them, right? But they want people to point at the Father and for the Father to get all the glory. And so that's what we're doing today. We know a lot of you guys are busy. We know you have big families. And so the question, I only have one question uh, for the Roberts, and um, then we're going to wrap this up in, in just a second. But my question is this, Brian. For the person that's sitting out there who's busy and they're not right now serving at their local church, what would you say to them? I'd basically say that I've been there. That I'm sitting here listening to Pastor Mike and I'm thinking of myself thinking it wasn't long ago when I was sitting in the old church and thinking, man, that sounds nice. I'd really like to get involved in that, but I've got so much going on. I've got six kids. I work 24-hour shifts. I can barely come straight from work and come here and not fall asleep in church. How am I going to serve? How am I going to do this? And me and my wife talked, and we decided we were going to make a commitment to get into the Shine Ministry. And I can tell you it's changed everything. Um, 
the people we met there, the relationships we've made, it really has made it where we love coming to church. We don't come and sit in the pew. We come here and we get more out of it every time than we've given. I can tell you just from my experience in the past year, sitting in the back of the church right here with our Elevation kids and going over the you know, Lord's Prayer with them, going, having them accept Jesus into their heart and watching my two oldest kids now see that me and my wife are serving in the, in the church and they stepped up and said, well, we want to be student partners and now they're serving as well. The biggest awesome. blessing is seeing it change other people. Awesome. Awesome. Could you guys thank them as they exit off today? So appreciative of them. So, if our church is going to continue to reach people with the love of Christ, then we're going to need to increase and strengthen the core group of this church. What's the core group? The core group are people who voluntarily, because we don't twist anyone's arms, okay? They voluntarily connect in a life group. They serve in a ministry group here at the church, and they grow in their own personal walk with the Lord, and they give. One of the greatest gifts God can give His children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.